Okay, so we're going to make a start. Good evening, everyone, and thanks very much for coming out on... Thank you very much for coming out on what is an awful night. I think you'll all agree. Um, my name's Jeff Goulding. Um, my background is I've worked in public services for many years, over 30 years in the NHS um, and in higher education. But as a hobby, I decided to write books um, about three or four years ago. Uh, after writing many articles and um, features for This Is Anfield website, uh, a couple of other websites, and since then I've managed to publish six books, all of which are available over there. Um, Black Friday deals available and all of that. Um, and I just want to say uh, a really big thank you to everyone for coming out because I know it's a Friday night uh, and the weather is absolutely awful. Um, We've also got some sad news to start with, unfortunately. Uh, some of you will have come along hoping to see uh, the great playwright, producer, writer, Nicky Alt. Uh, sadly, Nicky has sent his apologies for this evening because he's uh, had a sudden bereavement, uh, lost his father um, today. He's absolutely, obviously absolutely devastated, uh, but still found it within himself to contact us and send his best wishes for this evening. Uh, and we hope that this is the first of many such events. So, yeah, let's give Nicky uh, a round of applause. <laughs> we, we hope that this is going to be the first of many such events uh, where we celebrate the wonderful creativity uh, and passion that there is in this city for Liverpool Football Club and for football in general. Um, and so we plan many, many more events like this, and I'm sure Nicky will be along uh, at an appropriate time. Um, I, and I want to also say another thing is we've, we've been through a horrendous period in the last couple of years. Um, and I realised over the last two years just how much I took for granted being able to gather in large numbers at Anfield, being able to feel the passion of tens of thousands of people all around me, to be able to celebrate a goal and hug a complete stranger. Uh, you know, the joy that is going the match and seeing Liverpool score, seeing Liverpool lift trophies, and dancing in the stands, and I took all that for granted. And I took evenings like this and gatherings like this for granted as well. And I tell you now, I will never take that for granted ever again. And it's an absolute joy uh, to see you all tonight uh, to celebrate with us and to talk about the history of Liverpool's uh, fan base. And I think so many people turning out tonight speaks volumes about the people of this city and the supporters of, of both our football clubs, to be fair. Um, the passion, the sense of community, I thought that might raise a laugh. Uh, the passion, the sense of community, and, and what I think Kieran, George, Emma, and, and, and others in this room have discovered over the years is that actually that sense of community, that passion, and that sense of justice has run through this football club for over, over 100 years now. Um, and and it's, it's still going strong today. In fact, it's taken on a new expression um, today. So we have very much evolved from being supporters to being activists. And that's what we want to talk about um, tonight. Even, you know, way back in the early years of the 20th century, journalists and writers in Liverpool commented on how the cop was louder when the team was behind than they were when the team was in front. They had a great sense of fair play and sportsmanship and a great camaraderie. In the 1920s, Ernest 
Uh, B. Edwards, a, a legendary Liverpool Echo journalist, wrote that Liverpool was like the proverbial bunch of sticks. If you get one of them on, your own, on their own, you might be able to break them. But they're never on their own, and you can't break them when they're all together. And this was in the 1920s. Elisha Scott stood in front of the cop on the day that he was leaving Liverpool Football Club and thanked his friends on the cop, his friends on the cop, and told them that they were an inspiration to him. And then we move forward to the 1960s and Bill Shankly's socialism. And we realised in the 1960s that we were equals. We were equals to the players, equals to the, to the manager. And everyone was together for the same cause. And that sense of social, socialism and that sense of camaraderie found resonance in Liverpool, I believe, because of the people who live here. And that sense of socialism and camaraderie has drawn people from all over the world to come and live here. And some of our speakers tonight are from outside the city, but have chosen to live their lives in this city and love living um, in Liverpool. And then we journey forward again to the 1980s and the radicalism of the 1980s, the justice campaign, the campaigns against central government for more funds for the city. And of course, later on, we had Hicks and Gillette from the United States who came and almost broke this club, but no one can break this club and no one can break our supporters. So tonight is about dis discussing, celebrating that legacy, but it's also about celebrating the tremendous creativity that we have on Merseyside. And you'll see around the room a testament to that. So we've got the Red Archive on display. We've got Peter Kenny Jones, who's written a magnificent book Yay. about Billy Little. <laughs> Absolutely. We've got my own small collection, and we've also got George uh, and Kieran's book uh, as well. So please do support our local authors and our local artists, and if you can, purchase a book if you haven't already. If you have purchased one, we'll be happy uh, to sign, sign one for you. So this is the first of many events, uh, and, you, and we want you along on the journey as well. We want to provide support uh, and, and sustenance to local artists and local creatives. But enough from me. Um, because what I've got is an absolutely stellar panel um, of activists, artists, and a former player. And I'm going to introduce those people to you now. So first of all, um, I want to introduce George Scott. Many of you will know George. You will have heard about George. You may have seen George's many contributions online. Uh, if you haven't read George's book, please get hold of a copy because it is an absolutely wonderful story, a wonderful journey. Um, thank you. Um, so George has got the distinction of being one of Bill Shankly's first ever signings. He joined Liverpool as an apprentice in January 1960, along with Gordon Wallace, Bobby Graham, Chris Lawler and Tommy Smith. He played 108 games for Liverpool reserves. He was... Uh, the man with the most appearances in Liverpool's second string and the second highest scorer behind Alf Harrismith. He's the man that Bill Shankly referred to as the 12th best player in the world. He's just unfortunate that the 11 men before him were world beaters and there were no substitutes. Yeah? But George's love for Liverpool, George came down from Aberdeen um, on his own as a 15-year-old with 20 quid in his pocket and a suitcase in his hand, and he met one of the greatest football managers, if not the greatest football manager of all time, a man who transformed his life. 
And although he left Liverpool, he had a stellar career in football. He played for Aberdeen, his boyhood club. He won the league with Port Elizabeth in South Africa. And he went on to play 50 times for Tranmere Rovers um, as well. So please give a warm uh, hand for George Scott. Next up is a man who I didn't even know about two and a half years ago. Um, and I managed to write a book with this man um, without ever meeting him in, in person. Uh, we wrote this book on Zoom. We wrote it over the phone. We wrote it uh, by text message, email, Facebook Messenger, and somehow we produced The Untouchables Anfield's Band of Brother. I'm uh, absolutely honored to have worked with a fine football historian in Kieran Smith, uh, a man who's got a keen interest in the history of football, but is a passionate Liverpool supporter. Another man who is not of this city, but has found um, his true love um, in Liverpool. He's here with his, his lovely family, Georgina um, and the kids. He's travelled all the way up from Derbyshire. He's probably exhausted because he's been here since, he's been on the road since half five this morning, I think. Uh, so go easy on him. Uh, so Kieran is uh, an associate member of the Everton FC Heritage Society, as well as the founder member of the Liverpool FC Historical uh, Group. So his credentials in terms of the history of Merseyside football are second to none. Uh, and as I say, I'm very proud to be his co-author on The Untouchables. Please give Kieran a warm welcome. I'm also incredibly honoured um, on an evening when we're talking about the transition of Liverpool's fan base from supporters to activists, we've got someone who represents the pinnacle of that journey. Um, someone who is a lifelong Liverpool fan, although he did confess to me that his first ever game was an Everton game. Um, but it only took one game to convert him, so that's, that's not bad. Uh, he spent 40 years serving the, serving the public in local government, mostly in social care. He's been a member of Spirit of Shankly for seven years and served five years on the board of, uh, on the board of Spirit of Shankly, um, serving both as treasurer and now as the chair. He's led the union through many successful campaigns, including the campaign to prevent the club trademarking the word Liverpool when used in a football context, against the attempt to furlough staff, and more recently, uh, in the campaign against Liverpool joining uh, the failed European Super League. Jo Joe has led negotiations with Liverpool Football Club um, over achieving fan representation at board level, which I think is a monumental achievement uh, by supporters. No other supporters in the country uh, have achieved what Spirits of Shankly are set to achieve. Uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing about the progress that Joe and the team at Spirits of Shankly uh, have made, but he's not just um, satisfied with being an active and involved member of our fan base. Joe is also a member of the board of the Merseyside Domestic Violence Services and the vice chair of Chilwall in the community. And I am very proud that Joe has agreed to come tonight and talk to us. Big round of applause. Uh, for Joe. Next up, we have someone with a proud family history um, when it comes to, to Liverpool Football Club, but someone who's here 
in her own right as an artist and a photographer, the creator of the Red Archive. There's a magnificent display at the back of the room and some uh, merchandise over on the right there. Um, an artist in residence at the Open Eye Gallery and the daughter of Jimmy Case. It's an absolute privilege to have Emma Case with us tonight on my own. Next up, we have someone else who epitomizes the spirit of activism that flows through the fan base. Uh, today, we have Paul, a man who is a lifelong Liverpool supporter, again, not of this city, but at the first opportunity, Paul moved to Liverpool to attend university and has stayed here ever since. He's the son of um, a lifelong Liverpool fan who came and settled in this country uh, from Trinidad. Um, and one of the first people to be elected to Liverpool Football Club's official supporters committee as the LGBT rep and the, and the first to be re-elected in that position. Paul is a founder member of LFC LGBT and Cop Outs and you will have all no doubt seen Paul uh, in conversation with the boss, in conversation with Jürgen Klopp uh, on very important issues uh, relating to um, LGBT rights and what songs we should be singing as supporters of football matches and how we should be creating an inclusive atmosphere at Anfield for everyone, no matter what their background, their sexual orientation or their race or gender. Uh, so please give a very warm welcome to Paula Mann. Thank you very much. And, and finally, um, again, another huge privilege to welcome um, a stellar panelist, um, someone who is a copite, who stood on the cop, who supported Liverpool his entire life, who lives in Anfield, I am right there, lives, lives in Anfield uh, still, um, her, saw firsthand the pain and misery uh, caused by Tory austerity in Liverpool, the hunger, uh, and the poverty, and chose to do something about it, along with fellow Evertonians who've and formed fans supporting food banks to make sure that no fans, uh, no people in Liverpool go hungry, um, which you know remains a disgrace in this country that people go hungry for lack of means. And um, this next guest uh, is at the forefront of the campaign for the right to food, but actually has gone even further. He's actually made the journey from the spy on cop to the Houses of Parliament um, and uh, is a Labour member of Parliament for the West Derby constituency. And so we are incredibly grateful because I know how busy he is and how much work he does um, for his constituents and for this city. Uh, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Ian Byrne MP. <laughs> So I'm sure you'll all agree, we've got an expert panel uh, of highly qualified people uh, to answer your questions and discuss the issues at stake. And I am going to invite you all to ask questions. I've had one or two notes passed forward already. Before I go to the audience, Joe, if you don't mind, I was just going to go to, I was just going to go to Joe Bloff first. I did warn you. <laughs> uh, Joe, as, as the, um, the theme of tonight is supporters to activists, um, we're at a pivotal moment, aren't we, in the history of 
fan engagement. We've been through a turbulent time yet again in terms of the governance of football and the attitude of, of owners to football as a commodity. And I know you've been heavily involved um, in negotiations with the club recently. You have an AGM tomorrow which will which will vote on, on, on proposals. I just wondered if you'd take a few minutes to update the audience on where we're up to with that and, and how you feel about the way things have gone. Thanks, Jeff. Good evening, everybody. Um, thanks very much for the, the warm welcome. Um, I, I, we could probably take all the evening talking about this, to be quite frank, because it's, it's, it's about 30 years in the making, really, in terms of um, getting fan representation uh, at a national level uh, to, the, to the level it currently is. Um, so I certainly stand you know, in the shoes and on the shoulders of, uh, of many, many activists who've gone before me to, to, get, to get to this position, to be quite honest with you. I'm humbled that by what the work that they did, uh, and hopefully I'm building on the foundations that they put in place. Um, in terms of where we're up to, I, I, Jeff said it was monumental, it is. It's absolutely groundbreaking in terms of where we're at, in terms of fan engagement. Um, and I'll start with the news that came out yesterday, if I, if I may, just in terms of the fan-led review uh, that Tracy Crouch led. Um, obviously that came on the back of, of the, the um, European Super League and, and that farce that was. Um, but the reality was that football had been in a mess in terms of the governance arrangements for many, many years. Um, one simple example in terms of you know, the fit and proper per uh, person test that they have for directors of football clubs, there's three different versions of that. So you can imagine, can't you, if you, you, you're, you're a new owner coming along, you're just boxing cocks between, between all three. And then you confuse everybody and you get, you'll get, you get uh, everything sorted. And the same with Newcastle, uh, Newcastle being taken over. Um, people have been asking me yesterday, you know, will, will the, the, the Tracy Crouch review mean that won't happen again in the future? Well, it will if it's in public. The reality was that deal was done behind closed doors. And that's what we've got to stop with the independent regulator that, that she's proposing, is that there has to be some legislation that puts in place that there is somebody of a higher office, not necessarily governmental, but has the clout and also the say-so to stop things as they move forward. Because at this moment in time, there's too much involved, too much of the, the Premier League, the FA, the, the Football League, um, they're all in cahoots together, despite them being opponents, but the reality is they just want to sweep up the best money they can uh, through, through owners who, who let's, let's be honest, not always have um, the football club, and even worse, the, the football community, and even worse than that, the social community that is based that the football clubs are based in at the heart and we've seen what happened at Barry, we've seen what happened at Blackersfield, we've seen what happened nearly 13 years ago in Liverpool. Um, can you imagine the devastation to the Anfield area um, that we've just been referring to if Liverpool Football Club collapsed uh, the way it did? Well that's the same at Macclesfield, it's the same at Barry. Blackpool went through the same process, Old they're going through it now. We've seen what, what's happened in, in terms of uh, Charlton. Charlton got taken over. The first thing that the new owners did was buy 14, I kid you not, 14 Land Rovers, because that's, uh, Range Rovers, because that's what they just wanted. Saddled the club with debt and then just left it behind. Can't, the, the, the football itself can't, and the owners cannot be trusted to do this. So that's why fan engagement is really important because we can be your voices to air some of these views that are, are critical to the way that our football clubs are run. They're not cash cows, they're actually ours. 
the football clubs are purely and simply the owners of them, are custodians for us. We've just heard the tales now from George, from, from Emma and everything else, all the history that we've got going around this room. That's our history. It's not Fenway Sports Group history. It's not whoever the owners might be. It's ours and we own it and we need to maintain that, not just for the past, not for the present, but we owe it to the kids who ran on the pitch the other night <laughs> and make sure we got something. So, thank you. So just, just in terms, that's the kind of backdrop really, but just where we are with, with, with Liverpool particularly. Um, so we obviously fell out with, with, with Liverpool um, when the European Super League uh, was muted. Um, those probably seven or eight days were, were probably the most tense I've probably operated in, to be honest with you, in any, in any way, shape or form of life, to be honest with you, including my work in life. Um, we didn't know where it was going to end up. Um, obviously, we had a situation that we needed to ensure that um, fans got the best uh, out of the situation. And to be honest with you, we had a, a stellar team, as, 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 uh, as Jeff referred to. Ian, uh, Graham and Anna uh, were, and myself were our negotiating team with, with, with the football club. Um, and we started off with the owners. We said we weren't prepared to speak to the football club. And apologies, I sometimes use the club interchangeably. Obviously, the club's ours, but the owners were the problem here in this particular case. And we made sure we spoke to the owners. We gave them a heart-to-heart, -to, -heart, to be quite frank. They were willing to listen. Um, we then, as we would expect us to do as a democratic union, went out to our members to ask what their view was. We could have gone down the road of the United, the Arsenal, Tottenham, uh, Chelsea, just to protest uh, on its own without necessarily a means to an end. Or we could try and have a conversation with the club, uh, with the owners. Um, our members unanimously said, let's have the conversation, see if we can improve things, which we did. In negotiation, as you all know, you've got to have two sides who want to speak, um, and they did. Um, FSG did want to make something out of it. They wanted to make amends. They immediately addressed the key issues that we said about making a statement that they weren't going to join any uh, uh, Super League or any breakaway league, but they, but they, FSG, were going to pay the costs of both the, 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 all the court stuff that they had at that time and all the future court costs of trying to wriggle out of the contract that they had. Uh, so that wasn't saddled with, with Liverpool FC as a debt. Um, they agreed to work with us on the fan-led review I've just been referring to. So what you see in Tracy Crouch's review, if you were to see the slide presentation, if you go on our website and have a look and see the slide presentation, Tracy Crouch's review is a mirror image of what is being proposed for Liverpool and fan engagement. And that's happening now. It's not waiting for some government um, process. It's not waiting for diktats to come along. It's not waiting for the legal challenges that I'm sure the Premier League and all the other leagues will put in place. This is going to happen, providing our members agree. And the main principles of it are is that some of the issues that what you've heard about board representation is that people want to sit on a board. If you sit on the board of Liverpool Football Club or any other football club, your first duty is to the board. So your first, your first duty is to the decisions that they make. Now, if I was sitting on that board, I, would, I wouldn't want to go to 12th Man or the King Harry straight after a board meeting to say, we've just sold Mo Salah. But that would be the responsibility that I or whoever the board member would be would say, 
So what we've said is, is that what we want is direct access to the board. And as you can imagine, Fenway Sports Group is a, is a complex uh, beast. Um, they have the NASCAR rally stuff. They, they, they're looking at uh, ice hockey now. They've also got the, the Red Sox. Um, so if we sat on that board anyway, our voice would be well and truly lost in Boston. So what we've got is that we ha now have um, a mechanism where we meet monthly, or will meet monthly, uh, with three of their board members. And we'll have an opportunity to meet annually uh, with the full FSG board. Critically, and this, I have to say, was, was, was Ian's real insight in, into this, was we have, they have to get fan consent through us on your behalf to any existential issues that affect the football club. So if there was a, a, a move away from Anfield, if there was a ground share, if there was, if there was a breakaway league one they wanted to set up, they couldn't do it without your consent to do that. And that's the first ever that uh, that's ever happened. That is, in the Tracy Crouch language, the veto that they're referring to. And we've got that already, um, providing our, our members do that. <laughs> they'll also have to consult um, and also inform us. So they'll have to consult with us on, on their finances. They'll have to engage with us in terms of the, any issues they have around... Um, around new sponsors so we'll be able to put due diligence in there so you know anything that they we see as untoward in terms of which would be counter to the to liverpool's principles um, again they'd have to seek our probably not permission on this particular occasion but they'd have to seek our input which currently they don't do now all of this has been done and, and i can go into a whole level of detail but just two things to find finalize if i may one is we are going to create a supporters board as well. So, Spirit of Shankly, as the, as the official supporters trust, will lead on this. But it's really important that every Liverpool fan's voice is heard, and not just members of us. So, we are creating a supporters board, uh, which will have the strategic responsibility to work with the football club on the big issues. And I'm pleased to say that when that supporters board is set up, we'll have representatives from cop-outs, from the Liverpool Disabled Support Association, from the official Liverpool supporters uh, committees, uh, from the women's football team, uh, women's football supporters, uh, and from faith and ethnic, ethnic groups, and one other, oh, Spine Cop 1906. Um, so what we'll have is, is a group created democratically, again, Democratic, really important. If you listen, if you speak to Tracy Crouch's uh, script yesterday, she wants to embed democratic ownership within football clubs. Again, we've got that set up and created. The final bit is: Does it mean that cop-outs can still do its own thing? Is it still independent? Is it part of the football club? No, it's not. Will it act on behalf of the supporters board? Yes, it will. Can it operate independently and still do the challenges it needs to do to hold the club and football to account? Yes, it can. So we've got the, for me, we've got the three pillars of, of everything. Independence, support with each other and uh, collectivism and also, you know, uh, that collegiate approach, but then holding ultimately the club to account through formal fan engagement. So I think we've got a good deal uh, in the offing, uh, Jeff.
And of course, very best to look at the AGM tomorrow when that, those proposals are put uh, to the membership of Spirit of Shankly. We talk about Spirit of Shankly, and we talked earlier about Shankly's socialism. Um, you know, Shankly once said that at Liverpool, there is a holy trinity. The players, the supporters, and the manager. The board don't come into it, they just write the cheques. In fact, they don't write the cheques, we write the cheques, they sign them. George, you were there when that philosophy and that ethos was being developed at Liverpool. I just wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about Shankly's attitude and Shankly's affection and love for the supporters and what he thought of, of the supporters. Well, quite frankly, Bill Shankly was the greatest football man that ever lived, as far as I'm concerned. He was so inspirational that um, he made the hairs in the back of your neck stand up just listening to him. And when he spoke to us as players, you could feel the passion in his voice. He used to say to can you hear us at the back there? Can you hear me? There, can you hear me now? Yeah? Yeah, when he used to speak to us players, he used to sort of say, you've got to remember these guys that are coming to the cop, they work in the factories, they work in the docks, they've got menial jobs, a lot of them, hard workers. They come to Anfield as part of a group in the cop, and that's their day, so you play for them. So you don't play for yourselves, you play for these supporters. I mean, it was incredible some of the things he used to say to us. And I've used Bill Shankly's ethos in my life, from the day I met him until now. In fact, some of you may not know, some of you probably do, that last year I had to go into Broad Green Hospital for eventually having a, a five-way heart bypass. I didn't think they could do five-way, I thought three was the maximum, but I had a five-way. I recovered from that, I got myself back in the game, started to look to be back on the golf course again, felt fit, doing 10,000 steps a day, doing it all right, and then I was hit by bacterial double pneumonia, and I was back in hospital in Arrow Park, 17 nights in intensive care, fighting for my life. And on one occasion, my wife and my young son was brought in, and I think they were brought in to say that I wasn't going to make it. And the reason I made it, there was two reasons why I made it. One was the spirit of Shankly in my blood, that I wasn't going to give up. There was no way I was going to stop. I was going to fight every last breath. And the other reason was the fantastic skill, the fantastic work done in Arrow Park Hospital and all other hospitals by, in my case, the intensive care team that looked after me. And I'm proud to say that uh, one of the key workers in that group, in that intensive care, a gifted man, a man that um, I owe my life to, to be honest, and he's here tonight. And I'm absolutely thrilled that he's here tonight. His name is Pierre-Jean Arnaud. He's over there sat with his father-in-law. He's a huge Liverpool fan. And my heart goes out to him, and I'm so grateful for what he did for me. Again, getting back to Bill Shankly, when I came to Liverpool as a 15-year-old boy, I mean, I didn't know much about anything. I met Gordon Wallace, and I met Bobby Graham, and we lived in Diggs together. And we went to see Bill Shankly after a week's trial, and Bill said to me, I want you to sign. You've got to sign for the son. I said, well, I can't, Mr. Shankly, because my granny and my granddad don't want me to come all the way down to Liverpool. And in fact, my granny doesn't even know where Liverpool is. And Shankly said to me, he said, you tell us, son, we're in the second division of the English Football League, but we'll be in the first division next year. You tell her, soon everybody will know where Liverpool is. And that words inspired me to come from Aberdeen 
to Liverpool as a kid because they'd signed for Aberdeen verbally and had no intentions of going anywhere else. Liverpool weren't on the radar. They were a second division team, middle of the table, until Shankly took over. And Shankly, as you say, his belief in socialism, his belief in working together, working for the team, was all-consuming. And he knew hardship. He came from Glenbuck, a mining village in southwest Scotland, where there was two options. It was either the pit or it was football. And I think he had four or five brothers, and they all went into football. And it's brilliant that his grandson, Chris, is here tonight as well, over in the far corner. I can see him by his beard. And, uh, and his, his lovely wife, Lisa. And he does a great job as well in this hotel in Gilshanty's name. So I could talk about Shankly all night, as you know, Jeff. I can tell stories about Shankly, jokes about Shankly. I do that after dinner speaking for charity. But that's not the theme of tonight. The theme of tonight is to give everybody a chance to express their love for Liverpool Football Club. And it's lovely to see Peter Thompson's family here and Tommy Lawrence's family here. And I can't believe that I'm sat in the same room as him. These were the pioneers of Liverpool Football Club. That wonderful team. It was so good I couldn't get in it. Callaghan, Hunt, St John, Smith and Thompson. The Shanky said, I go nowhere, son. You're going to Aberdeen. Anyway, um, I'll pass you back, Jeff. Thanks, man. So, to be honest, I could listen to George all night, and it was wonderful listening to George uh, for over a year, working on his book with him. Um, and we'll have to try and do a sequel. <laughs> Oh, no, 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 no. Um, thanks very much, George. Well, what I thought I'd do now is invite a couple of people who are not of this city, uh, who weren't born in this city, um, but have come to make Liverpool their home um, and are as in love with Liverpool today as uh, we are uh, as Scousers. And I'm going to ask Emma, um, if you don't mind, Emma, uh, to just say a few words on, because we... We, we have a, I think we have a, uh, we're very proud of our city, we're very proud of who we are, um, and we have a real belief that, that we're special, and I think we are special uh, in this city, but I want to I wanna just ask Emma, I mean, talk about whatever you want to, Emma, actually, <laughs> um, but I want to know, <laughs> what, is it about, what is it about Liverpool, do you think, A, that, that attracts you to the city, but also in terms of the the activism of the city, what is it you th do you think about Liverpool that, that gives it that kind of radical streak? And tell me, tell me you're not going to, tell me you don't want to answer it if you want to. <laughs> or I could just talk about Strictly, maybe. <laughs> I want to correct you though, because actually you said that I, I wasn't born in. Oh, but I was, thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, so I grew up down south because Dad um, left Liverpool in 81 uh, when I was about six months old and we moved down to Brighton first and then across to Southampton. And then as soon as I was like 17, 18, I was up the A34 trying to get further up north. Started in Birmingham and then finally found our way to Liverpool about two and a half years ago. Um, I think part of the... <laughs> this is such a huge question and part of it for me personally I'm right I said I wasn't going to cry as well tonight I'm going to have you all crying there you go the female up on the um the team for me is home 
Um, I didn't witness any of my dad's uh, career, but actually starting the Red Archive and coming out and speaking to the fans, you guys connect me with my family in ways that I would never have been able to have done myself. And so just talking to you is, is like reliving and, and sort of tracing my family steps. Um, but in terms of activism, um, you are special. <laughs> and, I think, and I think it's for a number of reasons. Um, I think one of the main reasons, it sounds a bit weird, but I feel like trauma is one of the biggest reasons, I think, that um, this city has something that other cities don't necessarily have. I think in terms of the way, I'm going to go deep already, I, I think the way the government um, and the Tory government in particular uh, treated this city, um, I feel, but it is. It, um, um, I feel like Hillsborough um, and the way the media portrayed um, us, and I am going to say us as a city, um, I think we've always had a us versus the world. Other people have tried to narrate our story for us, um, have tried to paint us in a particular way, but actually we know the truth. And I feel like when you're going through a trauma, if somebody else who is next to you is going through that same trauma, then you, you are going to be one. <laughs> and that's what Liverpool is. And you're not just one because of that. You are stood. The cop is one. Um, because of what's happened in the past, you are one. Um, and I think... I feel like that is probably the biggest reason why other clubs, other communities look at us. And it's not just football, is it? It's everything. It's um, social enterprises. It's our um, strength in our communities. You know, you don't see anything like it in, in other, in other uh, cities, in other areas. And I just feel I'm probably waffling now. Um, but I feel like it runs through football, it runs through families, it runs through community, um, and I feel very proud to be a part of it. But I think, yeah, trauma is probably one of the biggest reasons, and although it's a horrible reason, I think it keeps us stuck together. So I, was, I knew I was right to ask you that question. <laughs> no, you didn't. Uh, and apologies, I don't know where I got that from. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, okay. Um, I've got three other people I want to ask questions to, but before I do that, does anyone in the audience want to ask a question? <laughs> Stunned silence. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, um, I'm Jeff Dunn. Uh, I was born in Liverpool, but left Liverpool at the age of two. My dad worked in power stations, and we went around the country, and I finished up in East Kent. And as soon as I kept, could, I came back up here, became a history teacher, and so on and so on. Um, uh, I, I could say I'm very proud of a few achievements I've had, but I would say possibly, um, I would say I am very proud to say 
I was the teacher of Carl Rimmer, age 21, who died at Hillsborough. And I played a game of indoor cricket at Kirby on the Wednesday. I hadn't seen Carl for five years since he left school. And I taught him every one of his five years at Cantrell School, Cantrell High School, Stockbridge Village, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so there was I on the Wednesday, and I'm talking to Carl. Uh, on the Wednesday, Carl had just got engaged, for God's sake. You know? And then when I found out on the Monday that he had died, uh, it was just devastating. And then I go into Kirby. I'd moved to Kirby by then to Roughwood School. I went into Kirby Town Centre, and there's Margie Clark uh, getting people to sign the petition uh, for the Sun newspaper. And, of course, it was just awful unbelievably awful and as you remember Liverpool was called every name in the sun the city of Liverpool you know for goodness sake you know we were they were we were being criticized in Liverpool because we were emotional about 95 as it was then 95 people dying and it's now 97 isn't it as a result of Hillsborough and we we're being criticized for being emotional eight years later Princess Diana died the whole nation is Emotional, we suddenly discovered. Now, it's my opinion that actually the, 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 the Liverpool people, and I've got no proof of this except in my heart. You know, I can't give you historical evidence. But in my opinion, the, 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 pe the, the people of Liverpool almost transformed the British people from being this so-called cold people into being a nation which wasn't afraid to show its feelings. And I believe in, in my heart that that, to some extent, came from the Hillsborough uh, experience that we had. Um, I've got to meet several of the, the families uh, here and there. And every single Hillsborough family, and can I just say again, uh, Carl Rimmer's family, I, I, I briefly taught older brother, older sister, a beautiful family, wonderful family. Um, Nothing like what I was reading in the papers that Liverpool families were. I'm very proud to say I was a teacher of that lad. I knew one or two others vaguely. Um, but that, that, uh, that transformed me in my, my, my own way. You know, we, we all were suddenly quite happy to cry, weren't we? In public. Oh, God, we're British. You don't do that. The British don't. Well, why not? Why the hell not? And now it's nothing for people to cry because it, 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 it hits us and it hits me. I can't sing You'll Never Walk Alone from start to finish. I can't do it because I think of Carl and I think of all the others. Um, so, so it wasn't really a question. I had a rather uh, sort of, his, because I studied history so much, I was going to ask Kieran because I've just bought the book, I haven't read it yet. Obviously, only had an, half an hour, uh, and I haven't even got. But, but I was I was going to ask uh, a, a question about how the rivalry uh, in, in Liverpool uh, was affected, uh, the Everton Liverpool was affected by the Great War or the, and the Second World War. Did it alter at all? May I ask you that, Kim? Thanks. Uh, well, we found, obviously, 
we knew that players were going to be affected by the war. Uh, I think we were quite shocked what they went through when they were out there. Um, when you think, uh, obviously you'll, you'll see it in the book or you'll read it in the book. Um, they had pretty severe injuries. They came home and made a career out of football and, 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 and had long careers, successful careers. But I think it was, it was the same all over Britain, really. Uh, I think emotionally, people just didn't show it. And I think life just kind of carried on, really. Um, but I think you learn afterwards, certainly years down the line in some cases, we had it in our own family, for example, um, the mental issues were long-lasting. Um, like my own great-grandfather, he took his own life in 1923, and that was attributed to the gas attacks that he suffered in, in northern France. But people just weren't encouraged to talk about things, and it was this stiff upper lip and all that jazz, you know. It was just, you kind of came home. Some people had terrible injuries, absolutely shocking injuries, but they were just expected to, to carry on. There wasn't much of a safety net either. You know, there was no um, funds or anything like that for people. Um, so life was pretty tough. I mean, the 1920s, to be honest, I thought they were going to be, you know, coming up to the jazz age and people were going to be excited. It was actually quite a grim time. Uh, you know, it was, people were really suffering. And obviously, the city of Liverpool, a lot of people were, were struggling. And uh, I just think, going back to the football side, I think football actually provided, as it probably still does, it provides uh, it's a couple of hours where you just don't have to think about anything else. And I think that was certainly the case in the 20s. You know, people were going to the football matches uh, at Everton, at Liverpool, just forgetting about what was going on in life for a couple of hours. Um, so, yeah, but life pretty much carried on. It was, but it, it was tough going. It was really tough. Um, thank you, Jeff, for that wonderful contribution there. Um, I mean, I'll just add the... Um, what we did see when we researched the Untouchables was that Liverpool was in ferment politically uh, in the post-war area. The Communist Party uh, gained quite a lot of ground. The Labour movement gained quite a lot of ground in Liverpool. The Communist Party actually won St Anne's Ward uh, local council uh, election. They had mass meetings in Central Hall. There was even a bank robbery uh, organised by the Communist Party to raise funds for the, for the cause. Um, so there's no question that the people of Liverpool were political during the 1920s, but we didn't really see that in the stadiums, and I think Kieran's right in his analysis that back then people saw football as a way of escaping that stuff, although they might have been radical and activists in their daily life. When they came to football, that was a way of getting away from it. And in terms of the rivalry, you know, we know that Liverpool and Everton fans went to each other's games. Uh, we know that the board of Everton were present at the celebration events for the 22 and 23 title um, and were, were there willingly and were lauded from the, from the, from the stage. Uh, so, so I think the city did come together, as it always does. Um, but I think football was a form of escape, more so then than maybe today, uh, where we see a radical expression and an activism in football. We hear songs sung on on the cop about our disdain for this current government. We didn't see much of that in the 20s, or at least we didn't find much evidence um, of that. Um, Paul, um, so you, you, another person who chose to be an activist, I said to you when we 
we first spoke, uh, first time we ever spoke, lots of people get angry about stuff. Lots of people, um, you know, feel, you know, discomfort and uh, rage at the way, um, you know, they're treated in society, uh, the disadvantages. But not everyone becomes an activist. Um, and you've chosen to become an activist around LGBT rights um, in Liverpool, and at a time when it, it, it's difficult to it's difficult to do that in a sport like football, which is very um, you know male dominated. You made a point when you spoke to Klopp about you know there's only, there wasn't any any out gay players, any out footballers at the time, and that can't be possible. Um, so I wondered if you just talked to us a little bit about your approach in trying to raise that issue and engage with people around something that might be a difficult issue for some people. Um, is that okay? Thanks. For me, I was a trade unionist. I've been a shop steward. I've always had to build alliances, go to the rule book where necessary, push boundaries. And when I had the opportunity to join the supporters committee, I put my application in, I put my experience down, I put my passion down about Liverpool as a club that I'd supported since I was a kid. And I ended up working alongside Paul Rice and Karen Gill and some other fantastic people and eventually Ian and others. And what I learned straight off was to tell the story of why is it that myself as a gay man, that I want to go and watch the match, but I don't want to feel uncomfortable. I don't want to feel unwelcome. I love going to the match. I love the electricity of a European night, you know, and, and the songs and the flags and the banners and all that. But what I don't love is a sudden throwback of somebody saying, shouting out something homophobic or racist or whatever, and leaving me or other people feeling that they're not welcome. Because the solidarity of going the match is, it's, it's something of beauty. It really is. And, you know, you talk about it being a form of escapism. I think it still is. So I was able to tell the story with other committee members and explain with them why those issues are so important that We've got to be the best of ourselves as fans, and we've got to be the best of ourselves as a city in making sure that everybody that wants to can come and support the club safely. And the safety issues for Liverpool fans are always at the top since Hillsborough. Nobody wants to see somebody leaving the match hurt physically but equally, nobody wants to see somebody leaving the match hurt emotionally and mentally. And telling the story, talking with people, was what gave LGBT plus fans the ability to think, hang on, we can actually enjoy the game. We can actually get the solidarity and I've been able to speak to quite a few Liverpool fans after the Chelsea match. 
and I think Emma was one of them, actually. Um, and there was a couple of others who felt empowered to tap people on the shoulder and say, don't chant that. All felt empowered to sing other chants louder and drown out the homophobic nonsense. And if I've managed to help turn the dial just a little bit and make things better and more inclusive and more feeling part of it, then that to me is making it more Liverpool because Liverpool to me is about unity. It is about a solidarity. And those things speak to me as a trade unionist. They speak to me as somebody who chooses to live in this city. And I want to thank each and every one of you who show your solidarity as fans, but also as human beings, because that stuff absolutely matters and it makes such a difference. We get contacted by people who are just on the verge of coming out or who've gone through horrendous things, attacks on our city streets. And what they have to say in appreciation for how Liverpool fans are becoming allies, it's priceless, absolutely priceless. So thank you. Um, there's a great quote about Scousers, and I want to say it was Tony Benn, but I'm not 100% sure. But he said, never tell a Scouser to do anything. <laughs> but if you ask a Scouser for help, they'll walk five miles in the rain to help you out. And I think the approach of cop-outs has, has ep epitomised that. I think the appeal for help and solidarity struck exactly the right tone. Um, and is one of the reasons why I think you've been so successful. Uh, I think you, you've shown a tremendous understanding of the psyche of the city, and you know it's really pleasing to hear you say that you, you know, you feel like we're becoming allies because I, I believe we are, we are all allies. Did you want to say? Yeah, yeah just please. Say, I, just, I think the biggest word that I, I feel with this club and this fan community is just empathy. We have just the most wonderful empathy and you know you know i don't know any of you that are on twitter and you know you can see lots of sort of negativity maybe it's about sort of refugees coming over um you know lots of different sort of areas now in this sort of modern society and every time something comes up in terms of liverpool fans or the liverpool community they always are able to stand in someone else's shoes and understand what it's like and then they will always put their hand out and say, no, we stand with you. And I just think that you've just tapped into it so wonderfully. And I don't know why that question, it's like, why is this city like that? Why is it not every city in this country? But it stands out because we care. It is. It's just, but, you know, lots of other people can't have the empathy or don't or can't see somebody else's position. And we, we just do it so well. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm hoping the next person might be able to shed some light on that as someone who's there. Uh, but just say whatever you want, Ian. It's fine. Um, someone who's travelled the country, kind of epitomising that Scouse empathy and that Scouse solidarity. 
you know, when, when Ian goes to away matches, uh, Ian will take food parcels and donate them to the, along with his, his uh, comrades in fan support and food banks. We'll donate food parcels to uh, food banks in the cities where Liverpool are playing. Uh, and I just think that's remarkable, uh, you know, because it's about... It's, you know, Ian said to me, we, I talked to Ian a while ago for a piece in This Is Anfield, and Ian said to me, it's not about charity, it's not charity, it's solidarity. Um, and that's the difference, it's not, it's not about pity, it's about if I'm down, I, you'll help me, and when you're down, I'll help you, and that's the way we are in this city. So Ian, I just wondered, you know, you've travelled the, the country with your acti activism around fan support and boobacks, you're now in Parliament, and you know, I don't know how you, how you share a chamber with some of the creatures uh, <laughs> in that place. I remember, I remember Terry Fields, MP, when he went to prison for not paying his poll tax, and he said he met a better class of person in Walton Prison, but... Um, so Ian deserves a medal for being in Parliament on our behalf. Uh, but Ian, I just wondered if, if you'd like to say some comments about the spirit of the city and the activism of the city. I'm going to stand up, my back's killing me. Uh, getting old now. I, it, it, I didn't know really, it's so thought-provoking, I mean, what, you, what we've heard today has been phenomenal, hasn't it? You know, and, and probably so much from Paul, uh, he's been an absolute inspiration to me, uh, my, my journey to life. And then I listened to what you said there, and you know, it, it, I think it's really interesting. Do we, do we think about the football activism and the political awareness in the city when Thatcher's government started talking about managed decline of the city? Then do we go to, to the, the derby in 84 at Wembley, when Merseyside, Merseyside, when Liverpool and Everton come together? Because because they felt as though the city was under attack, because it was. It was under attack. It was going to get put into the annals of history if, uh, you know, Thatcher's government would have had the way. And then obviously we come to Hillsborough, uh, which is, you know, dear to my heart, because uh, I was there, and what you said there was really touching. My heart fell as well. He was there, and many, many people are here. And, you know, the solidarity that was shown Jordan Ellsworth from Reds and Blues because it affected the whole city, affected the whole country. Uh, and I think that sort of solidarity is something which has been built on. Uh, if we look at fan support and food banks, uh, started in 2015 between the pool and Everton supporters, a couple of wheelie bins outside the ground. Now, last year we fed 33,000 people in this city. Uh, it's, it's spread right across the country. Wow, wow, wow. Well, yeah, the efforts are great. It's, it's shameful. Uh, it, it's, shame, it's shameful that, that, that that's got to be in existence. And, you know, for me, uh, on this unbelievable journey from, I mean, my me, me mates there, me, me Prince, me and Pricey, you know, from a cab driver and then ended up in bleeding Parliament. And, and why not? well, yeah, but why not? I couldn't agree more. But never planned, never wanted to be there, asked to be there. Landed there and thinking, what the bleeding hell am I doing here? Well, I'll tell you what I'm doing here, I represent my class. And also, I couldn't be prouder to be like, you know, have the ability to talk about Hillsborough and, you know, what we're going to do. But we're trying to get on a national curriculum, you know, as a teacher. You know, it should be ingrained in the DNA of every child, every generation in this city, 
and the country should know what the establishment did to this city and our club and our people. It should never, ever, ever, never be forgotten. Never be forgotten. And it should be something because, simply because, we can never let it, let it happen again. Uh, and that's something which we're, we're promoting, you know, I, I signed an early day motion last week and we got 35 MPs and that's just a start. We're really going to really go for this. Uh, we probably pilot in Liverpool, but it's for Carvima, it's for the families. It's, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's what we did as a city. It's been captured beautifully on here. So, I mean, I thought Emma's answer was wonderful, uh, how she encapsulated it. But for me, the golden thread running through Liverpool, through the history, is solidarity. And it always has been, and it always will be. And I think solidarity is absolutely crucial going forward. Everything I've done from a fan activism point of view is about solidarity to my community and it always will be. Fan support and food banks is solidarity. When we go to Newcastle, they've got fan support and food banks. It's solidarity, we bring food there. The first, and I'm proud because Joe was the one that's done it, uh, the first contribution to Manchester United food banks come from Liverpool football supporters three years ago. Now that's an unbelievable thing. And, and what we tried to do with, with what we, we, we talk about fan activism, but we tried to use fan activism to promote community solidarity. Know who your real en enemy is. Your real enemy isn't someone who speaks in a Salford accent, a Cockney accent, or a Brummie accent. Your real enemy is the people that are actually forcing you to go out and collect food at football games. And that took that sort of ethos into Parliament. And look, you know, I feel such a huge sense of responsibility uh, standing in Parliament when we're talking about ills, but you mentioned the sun, and you know, you know, I don't really want to go into that now, but you know, there's certain elements of my own party that think it's okay to write in the sun, and I've shown my disdain for that, and I'll continue to show that uh, my disdain for you know people that write in that paper because uh, of what it did to our city and our people. But for me, what you've always got to do is turn a negative into a positive, and what we've done with transport and food banks is see Tory austerity trying to destroy our communities. And we've started to use it to reframe how people think about football supporters. So where away fans were thought of as these terrible people coming into our... Well, now we're bringing food parcels. So it turns how people think about football supporters. That's what we start to do with fan support and food banks. Use it as a tool for solidarity. Drive solidarity. Now, we waxed lyrically about the things that we did, and Joe could as well, about what we've achieved. But what we've done is brought people together, and that will grow and grow and grow, showing football fans in a true light what we really are with decent people that actually care. Now, you touched, and I'm taking an a little bit, but we touched about why Liverpool's special. But also, if you look at what we're doing across the, some brilliant clubs, some fantastic supporters and working class communities are doing exactly what we're doing. So for me, it's a working class thing. You know, we're speaking to, my dream is to get Glasgow. Rangers, Glasgow Celtic working together like we do in Liverpool and Everton and we're having talks now, I'm not saying we're ever going to do that, but, but that's the aim, that is the aim, bring them together under a common goal, you know, put aside sectarian divides and look who the real enemy is, because Glasgow's suffering like Liverpool is, so that's sort of like conversations which we're having and being an MP gives me an unbelievably, unbelievable opportunity to sit down and speak to people who control the levers of power. So in two weeks' time, I'm going to be sitting down with the Minister of Poverty, uh, uh, Minister Prentice, 
and we're going to talk about the right to food. Now, everything we do in Liverpool and, and, and across the country, mutual aid-wise, uh, is unbelievable. It's great, but it's only a stick and plaster. Where we are now is a city, a third of our city, and in food insecurity. That's a third of the city. Now, that's mirrored across the country. We've got 11 million people in food poverty. So what we've always done with Fan Support and Food Banks is have a political element to it, and that's the right to food, where everybody's got a legal right to food, including universal free school meals for every single child in this country. Now, I'm going to sit down in two weeks, and we're going to make... We're going to really make the case for that with the minister. We've been doing it for like 12 months now. But I'm really respectful and I'm really humbled the fact that I was voted in. So if I was a taxi driver sitting on the rank like I was eight years ago, I wouldn't be able to sit in a room with the minister in two weeks' time. But I can now. I'm the same person, but I can. And that's what gave me the MP's roles done. So I, I will always utilise that to the best of my ability to further my class. And that's what we're trying to do. Everything that we're speaking about here for me is about solidarity. It's about coming together. It's about unity. And I think Emma's really touched on something. You know, some of the experiences we've had in our lives brings us together. It draws us together. What we've got to use that for is to spread that solidarity. It's right throughout the country. Make people think like we think bring people together. That's how we'll have a better society. That's how we get rid of this sort of government that we've got in now, such on the refugee situation. You know, that's what we've got to do. Our country's better than what we're seeing now. We can do better. And that's the end of my party political broadcast. <laughs>
American kind of advertisement and advertisement of the sport, what would you recommend in opposing 25-minute um, half times and World Cup every two years, like Arsene Wenger's kind of suggest? So when you're trying to take away football from the footballing fans and trying to make it more of a commercialized, money-making tool, what would you recommend for the standard fan to do to get behind um, keeping it the sport we love? Joe, that does sound like a question for you. <laughs> uh, I suppose, well, and there's another, there's another, there's another couple of questions uh, from, uh, I got notes earlier on about the problems we've had with the NFC uh, ticketing and sort of the, uh, the changes to COVID. Now, so I just wonder, because you talked earlier about the agreement that you, you're entering into, potentially entering into with the club, and the thing about consent and consultation. So I suppose in terms of the NFC stuff and, the, and what the gentleman's just said about, you know, introducing 25-minute half-time and marching bands on the pitch and things, if you could just talk about what the agreement you're going to have with the club and how that would be affected by the agreement. Thank you. Um, I'll take, take the last point first, if I can, in terms of the, the sort of the 25-minute, the Americanisation. Um, I mean, the problem with that is that it, it, it's all led, isn't it, by, by the, the, the corporate greed, but also the, the broadcaster greed as well. Uh, we've just seen a phenomenal deal done with um, the American uh, football uh, franchises in terms of the, 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 the money that they're going to be putting into the Premier League for the next, the next five years. Um, they want to return on that investment. So if they see a 25-minute half-time, they can have 15 adverts in, during, the, during the match. That's what they'll be going for. Um, and they don't care about the match-going fan. They don't care about the fan who just actually wants to watch 90 minutes of football. They're going to have to watch you know, 150 minutes of football as far as they're concerned. So in terms of what you can do to, to prevent that, you know, I mean, first of all, um, there's a, a barcode on the, on the Spirit of Shankly banner there, so enjoying our union. Um, but more than anything else, this, this is a football-wide issue, and I think that this is where... We, um, Football Supporters Association, where Football Supporters Europe that we're involved in as well. Um, this is something that we have to campaign about. Um, the solidarity that each and every one on this platform has talked about uh, has to be done. Um, and we can't be picked off. And I think it's really important that we don't allow, um, in terms of that level of engagement, to get it back to that. That we don't fall into the trap that we're actually part of their system. We're not, as I said at the beginning. We are the owners of the football club. We're the ones who should run it, and we're the owners of football. It's a working-class game. It's everything that we built up, and it's everything for our kids' future as well. Our kids shouldn't be watching a match on a Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock and have an advert before it, adverts show and adverts after it, having then probably the next phase will be, let's have it in you know, quarters, it's not. It's a 90-minute football match where 11 players of your team, 11 players of their team, play, and the, the the winning bit is actually in the in the game itself. It's not in how much goes into the bank of whether it's Liverpool Football Club or any other football club, and that's the problem that we've got. And that's why we'll have to the Crouch Review. That's why there will be 
I'm absolutely convinced there will be legal challenge to it. I'm convinced there's barristers already earning quite a few quid now, already thinking about how they're going to undo all of that. Because all they want to do is make money. It's as simple as that. And the Americanization drives it, the franchise model drives it. We then see what happens when you've got European clubs who are on the uppers, so Real Madrid, Barcelona, Juventus. Their only way to make money back is to change the system. What, what they haven't got in their country is a system that allows really good uh, league, league basis because the rich clubs have got richer and they've just left the poorer clubs behind and that's where we can't do that. We've got a football pyramid in this country that works effectively. It means that anyone can go and watch Wrexham or, or they can go and watch Tranmere or they can go and watch York City or they can go and watch West Bromwich Albion or come to Anfield and watch Liverpool. The same thing happens. 22 people run round on a pitch kicking a ball and cheer you up or let you down or both in between. And that's what's important. It's not somebody else's game. It's our game. And I think that's what we have to be mindful of. But I think the European Super League personally has gone away. But they will come back with something more and it will chip away. And that, that is absolutely one way of doing that, to extend their own commercialisation of football in a really subtle, sort of tissue way. And I bet you what, you know, if that happens, suddenly in a year's time you say, it's not too bad, is it? Because I can go and make a cup of tea or two cups of tea or three cups of tea. But you know when you're at the match, that 25 minutes is going to be the longest ever. And for players, you know, we've got players' welfare as well. You know, how, how are they supposed to keep, keep warm for 25 minutes? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's not an American football game. It's not a franchise game. It's football as we know it. And the football as we know it is the same when I look out of my house on Thomas Lane playing fields and people are running around on that pitch. You do that there and you do that at Anfield as well. And it shouldn't be any different. Um, I think it's really important to have someone like Joe on the fans board engaging with the club and being able to put those challenges in um, and I, I'm guessing that things like ticketing uh, no it's okay they're, they're going to be part of the consultation process so the club would have to consult the supporters board on things like ticketing going forward yeah, yeah. yeah. sorry I completely missed that point and I made me rant um, <laughs> Um, yeah, so, so, so they will. Um, you know, to, I mean, as I said at the start, I mean, on the Friday before that horrendous Sunday when the European Super League was announced, our engagement with the football club wasn't broken. It was actually quite good. It was probably the envy of the majority of Premier League clubs, to be quite honest with you. But they broke that on the Sunday. Um, but we had to repair it as we, as we have done. But in terms of light ticketing issues, they do engage with us. Um, it doesn't always mean that we agree. But what it means is that we're, we're, we're up there having a conversation and we do change their minds on certain issues as well. Now, the NFC one was, was actually, it, it, probably, it probably for most supporters sort of came out of the blue, but it's actually been in their plans for four or five years because this is their way of doing a couple of things, as you, as you know. First thing is, it gives them data. It gives them absolute data that tells you who's been the match on the, on the Saturday. So they know that I didn't go to the game, and therefore, if I haven't been in the game for five times, like the Bayern Munich bottle, you lose your season ticket next season. Now, we're not going to allow that to happen, but that's the kind of thing that they want to do, because they've got rich data, because they know who's going to the game, and who's not going to the game. So they'll then want to redistribute season tickets or members' cards in a different way. So we have to be careful of that, but ahead of the game, we know where that's heading, so we're mindful. 
But in terms of the actual implementation of the NFC, the actual model isn't really a problem because it's exactly the same system as the old membership card that we had. The problem was, was that they hadn't done any testing prior to it. They did those two games, uh, the pre-season friendlies, which are an absolute nightmare, where they had to you know, st uh, delay the kickoff of one of the games. If that had been a, a, a Premier League competition or a European competition, they would have been fined in the millions, so that there's no way they, could, they can actually allow that to happen now. And that's why they try and shuffle people in and say to them, can you get here about three hours before kickoff? Now, we knew with them that once the system bedded in, people would get used to it because that's what happens. But the problem is, is that it alienates so many people from going to the match. Um, because if you're not uh, savvy with, with the technology, it's difficult. If it doesn't work, then you send to the ticket office, it puts you off going again. You should be walking down Breck Road, Lower Breck Road, Utton Avenue, with a spring in your step, going to see that team that we've got now, which is absolutely spot on. Jo I don't know if you get in that team, to be honest, George. Sorry, but you probably wouldn't. <laughs> that, you know, what a joy to behold. And you shouldn't be worried about whether I'm going to get in or not. And that's the problem, but that's the conversation that we keep having with them and saying there's got to be improvement. So if you're going to have new technology, if they cite and say that, you know, it's how you get into cream fields now or how you get into any, you know, any other gig type economy, well, that's fine, but make it work. And don't do it just because you think, I want to make a quick book out of it. And that's the problem. But yes, we will be having those conversations. And if I want just two final things we can, because I missed these out before. The supporters board will also be able to take strategic things to the football club. So a lot of the times it's about us moaning or them coming to us with just a little bit of information. This is the opportunity now to get the strategic bit right. So if Paul says that we need to have a, a real campaign about LGBT, about what we can do, it's not just on an ad hoc basis. It's about getting there, getting ready and doing something. Talk to Ted Morris from the LDSA and he'll tell you that the football club used to ring him up all the time and say, we've had this diktat from the Premier League or from the government to talk about the disabled access at, at, at our stands, can you help me? If you didn't get that diktat or that memo, didn't make any conversation with them. But well, we've reversed that now, so Ted will be going to them. And he'll be going to them, not only on his own, he'll be going with supporter cop-outs, going to Sports for Spirit to Shankly, 1906 and everyone else, to make a difference and to be inclusive. And that's the bit that I think has changed now. We are absolutely in control of the, of the narrative now as opposed to the football club. The final thing to say, just in terms of the contract arrangements, I think this is the bit that uh, Tracy Crouch alluded to, but it's different in every football club. If this deal goes through, it will be written into the Articles of Association of the club. So it's not just again about now. This is future-proofing, fan engagement for our future generations, but also for any future owners as well who might come in and try to, to do something different. I just want to, I just want to ask: has, has anybody's match day routine changed since the NFC? Because what we've seen, certainly, Spirit of Shangri touched on this, was the local economy around the ground stuck a real uh, battering with regards to people getting in the match an hour, two hours early. The pubs have uh, slowed, and from a fan support and food bank perspective, our donations have cut in half 
uh, since the season started. Now, obviously, COVID, but also just the fact of people totally changing the match day routine now because they're terrified of not getting in the game. So some people are getting in an hour and a half before the game now. And the impact that's had on the local distilleries, the pubs who actually only survive. I live in Anfield. There's two or three pubs that only stay open during the week because of the match day revenue. Now, they're not getting that. So that impact is going to really... Because Anfield, at times, when there's no, no match day uh, on, at times it can be... <laughs> It can be really dismal uh, around the area. So I think we've also always got to think about the impact that what any technological changes have on the local economy. And we've raised that. Joe's raised it with Liverpool. I've raised it with Liverpool. Dan Carden's raised it with Liverpool. But it's something we've got to push because we've got to protect the infrastructure around Anfield. So it's not just open on a match day. Because all them pubs, a lot of them pubs, what you see around Anfield now, only open on a match day. It just comes alive for the 90 minutes for that day, then it shuts, and we see like six days a week of like, no, a desert. So we've got to make sure that we protect the citizens and the communities around the football grounds and include Everton in that as well. Um, we're, we're coming to the end soon. I'm aware there's a couple of people from the audience who want to come in, and Emma wants to come in, and then we'll, we'll call it a day. So I don't know if anyone from the audience wants to ask a question. I think there was a gentleman at the back there. Sorry, I, I don't want to waffle on, try and make it as brief as I can. Sorry, I disagreed with your comment earlier about the SUN, the newspaper, never a newspaper, it's an absolute rag. So. <laughs> <laughs> and anybody who buys it needs to be taken out and thrown in the mersey. Um, sorry, I, 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 I share a season ticket at the moment. I'm sharing a season ticket on the road end, I'm sharing a season ticket on the cop. I was at the Brighton game the other week, 25 minutes queuing to get in. I spoke to the steward, the main steward at the Anfield Road end, and I spoke to the main police officer, and I said, it shouldn't be taking 25 minutes to get into the stadium. It's a, it's a disgrace that this, this entry system, is, it doesn't work. And he said, it's improving. It's not improving, it, it, it's crap. That's my opinion, and hopefully uh, many people will agree with it. I was at the game the other night, I got there at 10 to 7. I'm not going to the pub before the game because I thought, I'm not going to put up at the Brighton game. I was at the pub in the Cabbage Hall before the game and I thought I'd better get in there early. 25 minutes to get in is just beyond, it, it, it's a farce. And the police said, we're here to um, sort out public disorder. I said, you're in charge of the game. If, if the worst case scenario happens, Hillsborough, the police, stopped the game with the referee and he said to me no it's up to liverpool football club the stewards are in charge of the game and there was one female steward at the anfield road end and she was going along without a loud speaking she was going mnn mnn even people were saying she asking us do you want sweets or something like that this is how pathetic it was it's happened on the day and and it's just we're being treated like sheep again and the club has got to, it's got to improve this entry system. And, you know, it's, they say it's teething problems, they say it's improving. I'm sorry, we're into about the eighth or ninth home game of the season. It is not improving. And um, I don't want to waffle on, but I'll pass the mic over. 
And I, I think that that is an ongoing issue that I'm sure Spirits of Shankly will continue to, and the Supporters Committee will continue to engage with the club on. Um, are there any other questions, comments from the audience at all? Emma, did you want to come in on anything? Yeah, please. Just listening to Joe, I just, um, I just think that our general society and maybe um, our political parties might need to take a leaf out of Spirit of Shankly's books. Um, and the way that you are able to come together as a group of people and hold the club and the owners accountable and make massive changes and be that kind of voice. Please, can you just maybe try and do, do it for, for the Tory government and get them out? <laughs> do you know what I mean? I just feel like it's just... We should really, we should really like sort of study what they're doing and see how they do it, because actually... It's not this city, but in terms of sort of, you know, Labour voter, and I'm, I'm sure we all are, but it's like we need to be able to learn about how these guys are coming together and how they're creating change. And I think if we can do it on a bigger level, then maybe we could get the Tories out. So, I mean, what a, what a great way to... Yes, please do. formed 13 years ago um, and it was formed out of um, the Hicks and Gillette issue. Um, it started life out as uh, the Sons of Shankly, which clearly wasn't very inclusive. Uh, so it was quickly and rapidly changed to the Spirits of Shankly, which actually means a hell of a lot more as well, uh, because that's what we're hearing in terms of everything that Shankly did around the, the club, the city, nationally. You know, that's, that's what we live off really and feed off. Um, so really it was born from that, but I think the most important thing was supporters, engagement supporters, um, trusts, organisations, etc. I've been, I've been around for years, but the majority of times it's been about um, having a club dinner where you know a, a celebrity will come along at the Christmas time and, and, and win an award or whatever. So it was never about really about taking the club on, and you, you mentioned one of, you know, Emma just mentioned there about holding the clubs to account. And that's the, that's the real thing we need to do. That's, that's what we are organised for. I'll be honest, I wasn't one of the first people who did that. Um, the people like Nicky Alt, like Paul Rice, Ian, others who were around at the time. Yeah, in, indeed, yeah. It, you know, who, who took on that fight because, being honest, that, sitting here now, I, I think there's, there's, there's an element in terms of working with the, the club now is incredibly different to working with the club then. And if I was chair of Spirit of Shankly 13 years ago, I wouldn't have been the right person to have led that campaign, really, because you have to have the right people doing the right things at the right time. And I just think, for me, there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's an element of that, that moment in time, that having a negotiation that we currently have. I'm able to do that because of the work that started 13 years ago in the sand and then onto the Olympia, then the walk down Lower Breck Road. Those, those real campaigns that really took off. 
20s plenty campaign where we where, where, the, where the, you know nationally uh, you know a 30 pound a weight cap it was meant to be 20 pound we got 30 pound which is which is incredible um, all of those campaigns have been built on the real solidarity of what this in the same way that we were talking before about this city won't won't be won't be put on it will always take on it was exactly that and that's where it, that's where it was born that's where it came from and you know thankfully you know it's still still here today it operates as a supporters trust but more than anything else it operates on a basis as a union and that's the democratic process that we have and again again that's why i was really pleased to hear a tory minister uh, ex-minister saying they wanted it to be democratically embedded in a football club that's great news because all that means it is democratically it's done through union ways it's done through conversations with as many people as possible things are put to the vote and the reality is, is that when I go in front of the, of, of the board of Liverpool, I'm doing it with legitimate backing of yourselves as Liverpool football fans. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Um, I'm going to bring it to a close now, but we're going to be around. So if people want to come and ask us things and have a conversation, uh, that would be most welcome. Uh, I want to finish by saying nothing that we've ever achieved in society has been handed down by benevolent overlords. We've had to fight for everything for the last century, haven't we? Trade union movement, born from the ground up. The National Health Service, the welfare state, employment rights, all four four from the ground up, not handed down to us. And likewise, involvement in the things that we're passionate about, our leisure time, the things we enjoy, We've had to fight from the ground up to achieve that as well. And I think Spirit of Shankly, uh, as a movement, fan support and food banks as movements are fantastic examples of su supporters, not just campaigning for employment rights and welfare and benefits and the National Health Service, but campaigning to improve their leisure time, campaigning to improve their engagement in their communities. And so community activism is a really big part of our football club now and long may that continue there is power in a union so i would ask everyone in this room if you are a liverpool supporter join spirit of shankly uh, and join with the likes of joe and ian and others to campaign for a better experience for liverpool supporters all around finally finally there were there were two purposes to tonight one was to talk about the evolution of Liverpool fans from supporters to activists, but the other was to promote and support local artists, local writers and local authors and celebrate the creativity that there is in this city around football, but, but the creativity generally. And so we want this to be the first of many events and we promise you in the new year there will be more uh, on a variety of subjects and you will all be welcome to come along. We hope that through these meetings we will create new artists, new writers, uh, new poets, new activists uh, for the football club and give them a space to have their views heard and give them a space to be uh, listened to uh, and have a voice um, in, the, in the fan base. So please do visit the stands, buy the books, buy my books, no, buy anyone's <laughs> books. Jesus. Christmas is coming. <laughs> buy Peter's book as well. Yeah. Um, no, please do have a look, come and visit. Um, and uh, I just want to finish by saying thank you so much for coming out on such an awful night. We really do appreciate it. Thank you.
Now go and get the ale in.